Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Vinny Crispino. Vinny is a former Division I swimmer. After college, he felt burnt out from swimming and decided to move out to California and learn how to surf. He ended up injuring his back after getting cast onto a rock from his surfboard. This spurred a 10-year journey to fix the subsequent issues and avoid having discs fused. Along the way, Vinny founded the Pain Academy, where he helps people find ways to avoid pain from injuries and lifestyle. Vinny is now training for his first 50-mile ultramarathon after solving his back injury. I have been working with Vinny after his interview to help him get dialed in, and I'm really excited to see how he does on his first 50 miler and if he'll become a repeat ultra marathon runner. Uh, before we get into the interview with Vinny, a few notes. Uh, if you are interested in catching some of the episodes before they hit all the platforms in YouTube, you can get early release episodes and ad free audio versions of the show over on the show Patreon page. Right now, there are a couple interviews up there. One is with Stuart Chutter. Stuart is an ultra marathon runner, a Spartan athlete. He also does things like marathons, all sorts of running stuff. But what makes Stuart unique beyond that is he's also a regenerative farmer up in Canada. He uh, has, I believe if I remember correctly, a uh, one mile by one mile area of farmland up there that he around six years ago converted into a regenerative uh, process there. So he's came on the show to share his lifestyle, everything he does out there. He's even got an outdoor gym that he built on his, on his farm. And at one point trained for a marathon, eating only food grown on his own farm. So he trained and raced it doing that. He's also done things similar to that, where he uh, ate only from like local farmers around his, his farm and did it all on that stuff too. So he's a really interesting guy to talk to. That one's up on the Patreon page right now. Uh, also Boyd Myers. Boyd is a Air Force vet, former bodybuilder. He gained a lot of weight after selling a gym he owned post Air Force career and uh, ended up losing 75 pounds of that weight through triathlon. Uh, he's currently part of the Gold Star Initiative, which gives veterans the chance to team up and honor Gold Star families by carrying an American flag during the run portion of select Ironman and Ironman 70.3 events and presenting it to the Gold Star families at the finish line. So uh, Boyd was an interesting guy to talk to. He is uh, like always, I guess, shot out of a cannon. So it was really interesting to hear kind of his his uh, approach to training and fitness. He's very much a guy who I would say operates spontaneously when he makes his decisions. He's done just an impromptu 100 mile where he just ran 100 miles one day randomly. Uh, his Gold Star Initiative project he's working on right now is going to entail him doing an Ironman triathlon and then the half Ironman the following day. So it gives you a little bit of glimpse into Boyd's life. That one's up on the show Patreon page as well. Uh, currently scheduling a couple interviews. Uh, Dr. Spencer and Carl Nadolsky are going to come on and talk about obesity and endocrinology, as well as continuous glucose monitoring, practical usage, and things to be mindful of. I've done a couple episodes on glucose monitoring and kind of where that technology is, because it seems like from a blood monitoring standpoint, that technology is ahead of a lot of other metrics. So having that information does create issues potentially. It's a tool, but those tools can maybe tell us things that 
uh, highlight certain parts of what's going on, but not everything. So where are some of the pitfalls maybe we're going to touch on with those guys, as well as some of their other expertise. Also, Jennifer Lankinu is going to come on and talk about urban hiking and her big health turnaround. She has been seizure-free for, I think, nearly six years now, lost over 160 pounds, uh, and has, I wouldn't say cured, but manages her epilepsy. Uh, through a low carbohydrate diet. So I want to hear about the urban hiking, what all that entails, as well as her journey back to health. Uh, those ones will be scheduled and up on the show Patreon page as soon as they are ready. Also, this one's gonna be a little different. I will be recording an episode with Alexander Sorokin this week, as in a day after this episode releases. He just broke the 24-hour world record for a second time. He was the current world record holder for that distance where you see how far you can run in 24 hours. He had broken what a lot of people considered an unbreakable record a while back by a little over three miles. And he just outdid himself by covering an additional 10 kilometers beyond his previous record, nearly hitting 200 miles in 24 hours. It ended up being 198.6 miles uh, specifically for the distance, which comes up to a seven minute and 15 second pace for 24 straight hours. Insane. So he agreed to come on the show. He's going to do that on Thursday. I'm going to try to turn that one around very quickly and have it up on Friday. So two days after this one's released because of the proximity of with this breaking record breaking, I want to get that one out there sooner rather than later. And uh, like all the other shows, the ad-free options will be up on the Patreon page too if you want to access it through that through that mode. Uh, I got a lot of questions to talk about uh, with uh, Sorokin because he has not just broke the 24-hour world record. He's been on a tear the last couple of years, breaking basically every like runnable ultramarathon record from six hours up to 24 hours. So he's got the six-hour world record, the 100-kilometer world record, the 12-hour world record, the hundred mile world record, the 24 hour world record. Uh, and he's just, just cruising right along with that stuff. So I'm going to dive into him with his training, his approach, how things put on a race day and all of that sort of stuff. The show's Patreon page can be accessed by heading to the show landing page, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. On that page, you can also contribute one-time donations. If you don't want to access the show Patreon page, through the links on that landing page. If you want to support the show, but non-monetarily, you can do that by liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform. By sharing the episode with your friends and family, it helps me grow the show and goes a long way in helping me produce more episodes. Uh, also, if you are interested in coaching services, I have a variety of options available for you on my website. I can coach you one-on-one -on -one if that's interesting, or you can also access pre-made plans that follow my philosophy. You can find those at zachbitter.com. There, you can also sign up to a newsletter that I write fairly infrequently, but usually I'll have a topic or something interesting that I want to talk about, and I'll send that out every month or so, so you won't be getting spammed with a lot of stuff. But if that's interesting to you, you can access that newsletter at zachbitter.com as well. Also, uh, by supporting the show's sponsors, if they have something that you find would be useful for yourself, letting them know you came through here helps me support the show as well. 
This episode sponsors as well, as well as all of them can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode sponsors include Bioptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough and Inside Trackers Blood Panel. All right, folks, let's talk a bit about magnesium. Magnesium is abundant in green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains. Magnesium is also an antagonist of calcium in the body and is required for vitamin D synthesis and activation. As such, magnesium deficiency can inhibit the potential benefits of vitamin D supplementation. If your way of eating does not include many magnesium-rich foods, or you have these but still experience low levels of magnesium, you might want to consider Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. Supplementing with magnesium can have its downsides, one of which is it can also be a laxative, which could just exasperate the problem you are trying to solve. Magnesium Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium product because it is the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb. And this month, Bioptimizers are including free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders while supplies last. That means you are getting free products to try that will support your digestive system. Having an optimized digestive system means less energy trying to digest foods and absorbing more nutrients from the foods you eat. This special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. Visit magbreakthrough.com forward slash human and enter code human10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, for 10% off any order. Bioptimizers also continues to offer its impressive 365-day money-back guarantee so you can test it out risk-free. Links and details can be found in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Inside Tracker offers a wide range of blood tests. You can go into a lab or check out one of their home kits. Either way, you can take a look inside and see the areas you are thriving and spots to work on. The biggest question with this type of info is often, well, what do I do next with this information? You have the data, but what's the plan? Inside Tracker will give you suggestions and help you personalize their nutrition and lifestyle to optimize. Since people age at different speeds, some faster, some slower, this means the date that marks your birthday may not represent your body's actual biological age. That's why Inside Tracker developed Inner Age 2.0. This is a proprietary AI-driven platform that reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. At Inside Tracker, they believe that your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. By looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. So if you want to continue doing the activities you love with the people you love for the rest of your life, checking inside with Inside Tracker is an option for you. For a limited time, Human Performance Outliers listeners can get 20% off your entire Inside Tracker order, including InnerAge 2.0. Just visit InsideTracker.com forward slash HPO podcast. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash HPO podcast. That link is in the show notes as well as the show sponsor page at ZachBitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Benny, thanks for taking some time to uh, come on the show. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've been running ultra marathons now for coming up on almost 12 years, I think. So like 
having your own story of just like getting in the sport and like how you end up doing something like anyone really gets into like any sort of activity thinking oh yeah the end game is running ultra marathons you sort of like <laughs> find your way through whatever whatever means to get there so one thing i noticed i think when i first got into this sport was just the number of just wide ranging introductions that people have to one even deciding hey i'm going to run an ultra marathon or decide to do that versus what they were doing in the past. And it's just like such a wide range of different like backgrounds. Some people had a, like a thorough running background, a sports background, athlete background, other people, complete opposite. It's like, you know, they, you, you see stories like someone lost like a ton of weight and then they decided, okay, well now I'm going to, I'm going to try my, try my uh, luck at one of these, one of these crazy distance races and things like that. So it's always fun to talk to people and kind of hear their background. I know you have a like a really interesting background in terms of how you got to, uh, you know, where you are today, where you've signed up for a 50 miler, uh, not just a, an easy one, either a challenging 50 miler up in Oregon. So uh, maybe, maybe we start off with just you giving a little bit of background about yourself and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, we'll start off with, I've never been a runner. This is, this is all new territory for me, literally within the past two years. Um, I, my origin is really in the water. I was a swimmer and anything on dry land did not come easy to me. I couldn't throw a baseball, couldn't throw a football, couldn't make a basketball. But when it came time to swim, that was just my second. I mean, that was, I was in my environment and I started swimming at a really young age, uh, around six years old. And within a few weeks of starting I broke my first pool record. It was just such an obvious, this is what I was meant to do. And from that young age, I spent literally my entire childhood training for swimming. You know, like most athletes, your dream is to make the Olympics. I had my, my eyes set on the, the 2008 Beijing Olympics and swam competitively, made my way up to division one. Uh, acquired some 30 plus Colorado state records, eight time all American. I mean, that, that was my thing. Uh, but I got really burnt out doing that. I could only swim up and down that same pool so many times. And when I finally got burned out of the sport, I still had this love of water and I wanted to find something that was somewhat comparable. I wanted to find enjoyment again. I was so burnt out of the performance stuff that comes with uh, competing in D1 programs that I naturally kind of drifted towards surfing. That seemed like a really non-structured way to enjoy or being athletic. And it was totally uh, a new environment for me to explore. And, you know, at the time I found out really about surfing and my love for surfing, I was uh, in my first year of college at the University of Wyoming, which does not have access to any good waves. Mm -hmm. So I panicked and I hit the eject button, sold everything I had, and I headed out west to chase these pipe dreams of becoming a pro surfer. And I was good in the water. I could get out to the waves. I felt strong, but my surfing skills were nowhere near where my swimming skills were. And it wasn't long, probably a couple months after moving out to California, where I had a pretty gnarly wipeout, wiped out at Leo Carrillo State Park, which is a rock surf break. My lower back hit a rock and I went from extremely confident elite athlete, never really being faced with injuries outside of just the occasional swimmer shoulder. I mean, really, really minor things, you know, swimming is not really a, a contact sport. It's not a lot of load that you have to deal with. It's just, just your body weight and water. And I wipe out surfing 
break my T12 vertebrae. My spine shifts 21 degrees to the left due to the force of the impact, multiple herniated discs. And that was it. I mean, I, I went from being this extremely capable young man to standing for more than a few minutes was a nightmare walking up and down stairs. I mean, I really had to, to do my due diligence and figure out, is it even worth going up those st stairs due to the pain and the flare up that would come afterwards? Uh, it was such a radical fast transition from feeling just like Superman to nothing. And I spent the better part of the next decade trying to figure out how do you even heal? Can, can you even make a comeback? Can you uh, come back from an injury like that? And we'll get into a little bit later the work that I do, but um, it was 10 years of struggling through disability and making a knack for helping other people but never really fully servicing myself. I was able to help so many others. I, I had eventually went back to school. I learned the art and the science of corrective exercise. My passion was helping people because I also was passionate about helping myself, but that didn't really happen for a really long time. And it wasn't until years and years of searching for answers and how does the body work and what does the body respond best to? How do you come back from an injury like this that, I kind of felt like I had a lot of the tools, but I wasn't doing anything with them. And when COVID hit, that was when I said, I'm going to try running. I've never done it before. I don't think I could swim up and down a pool one more time in my life. Mm -hmm. I hung the goggles up. And, you know, when I, when I first went on uh, my first run, you know, the goal wasn't to become uh, an ultra marathon runner. It was to not die for a mile. Mm -hmm. And that was a very big goal because I died for that entire mile. Um, and, and really the past two years have been me falling in love with a sport that I just, you know, doctors told me I wouldn't be able to walk unassisted. And here I am two months out, actually not two months, six weeks out from hopefully crossing that finish line, my first ultra. Yeah. You know, hearing your story makes me think about a few things. I think like for one, you know, you have a, a, a successful division one swimming background. And I think like when you have yourself in that situation where you're that good at a specific sport, and then you mix in like that age demographic of your, in your twenties, you sort of feel like if I'm this good at this, this must translate into other things too. <laughs> And you're young enough and bold enough to put yourself in positions that are probably a little more dangerous than maybe uh, the skill set would 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 require on a different aspect and stuff. And I find myself, or I, I found myself doing things like that from time to time earlier in my life. I probably do a lot less of it now, but uh, uh, fortunately for me, I never found a situation where I was, uh, you know, up against a rock like you were, where I actually paid for that decision making or that like youthful uh like you know throw caution to the wind type attitude that we sometimes see uh so it makes sense that i think that you know that that was the time of your life where you were just like okay i'm gonna you know i'm, I'm done with this i'm heading out west i'm gonna take this challenge on and and not even probably think twice about whether it was doable or not in your mind i'm sure you were like oh yeah sure i'll be a you know pro surfer within the next couple of years or i'll be you know on to something great out here one way or the other and um before we get into some of that stuff though i think like I want to hear a little bit more about the exact experience too. So you are out there surfing and you find yourself essentially like up against a rock where your lower back is. 
is taking a huge impact. Were you able to swim yourself back or did someone have to kind of drag you out of there? How did you end up uh, back on shore after something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. The amount of time that I spent in the water up until that point, I think was, was my saving grace. Being able to remain calm in a situation of panic that was the water was my second home. And so when I, I knew immediately before I even surfaced above the water, as soon as my back hit that rock, I, I knew immediately something was wrong. I mean, I heard it, it, it felt like it broke my soul, man, before I even came up to surface. As soon as I took that first breath, my first instinct was to look down because I didn't feel my left leg. I thought it, I thought it was just off. It was disconnected. Luckily, obviously it's still there, but I had so much nerve damage that I had lost that sensory feedback. I still had motor control. I was kicking my leg, but I didn't feel that leg flopping around the board. I lost the board to this day. Don't know where it went. Getting back to the shore was literally just a back float and trying to dodge the, uh, incoming surf. And it was rough waters to get back. When I finally got back to that to the shore car was probably maybe 150, maybe 200 yards away. It was, it was just a straight up almost army crawl, uh, not fully on my belly, but on my hands and knees with my left leg, just kind of dragging, dragging behind. And in this moment of, I think it was just shock. That was probably the easiest way to describe that. I wasn't thinking my only response. The only thing going through my mind is I need to be alone right now. And I think hindsight and now me being 14 years past this injury and just understanding how I deal with, with trauma and really intense situations. My first instinct is to just be alone and just kind of sort out what is actually happening right now. And to just kind of go inward as much as possible. And that was my reaction, uh, struggling to get to the shore, crawling to my car, pulled myself up into my truck. And I drove home where I just spent the rest of the night on the ground, just trying to process what, what the hell just happened. Mm -hmm. So when did you start to realize, oh, this isn't just going to be something that like goes away in a couple of days. I need to go in and figure out exactly what kind of damage I did to my back. Yeah. I think I knew that the moment it happened because I'd never experienced pain like that. I mean, really before that backbreaking injury, bicep tendonitis was probably the most extreme injury that I'd actually experienced. I'd never really broken a bone before, never torn a ligament or had tendonitis or soft tissue damage. This was it. So I think given the fact that I had nothing to compare it to, and then feeling the severity of that, um, it dawned on me that moment that life was going to change, but I think it really set in later that evening when there was just, there was no comfort. There was no comfortable position. It was every breath. It was like me literally trying to manage what is the least and most I can inhale and exhale without just this searing, stabbing pain. And having that breath, that, that vital breath become now a negotiation of what I can and can't do, it, it, it really set in later that night that this is uh, not something I'm going to walk off. And the next morning, went to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So when you got to the hospital was, uh, I'm sure like the anticipation was just kind of unnerving too, just like kind of here, like waiting essentially for like, you know, what's the next step in my life essentially. Uh, when the doctor 
did they, were they able to kind of diagnose you fairly quickly and say like, yeah, this is what you did. And this is sort of the timeline you're looking at, or what was like the sort of the course of, uh, of, uh, the next steps, I guess, maybe from the doctor coming back in and letting you know kind of what was maybe going on to what your, your planning process was going to end up being like from there. Yeah. I think the doctor did a pretty good job in quickly diagnosing, okay, we've got a fracture here. This is what the soft tissue looks like. We need to go get some nerve conduction tests. Like we need to get the full scope of this project. We're going to recommend you to a specialist. So you can then go figure that out. Um, my best guess is we'll probably need to do at a minimum of a fusion. Here's some drug medication to get you through until you can see that specialist. So it wasn't a emergency call to action. We need to do surgery. He gave me his best guess as to what probably the best course of, 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 uh, best course I need to take. And it wasn't until seeing the specialist probably within a, a few days later where again, I heard the word fusion and I saw another specialist. And again, I heard the word fusion and I'm just continually being fed these pain, uh, pain pills being given these braces and surgery just seemed to be incredibly inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, at what point did you decide, all right, I have to just go with one of these recommendations, get the procedure done, and then figure out what, what you could do or not do post-surgery? Well, this is where we get into me being a very young man. <laughs> here, here I am, terrified in an exorbitant amount of pain. I'm sitting across from a doctor with a highly decorated wall, a specialist in what is happening with my back. And I thought I knew better. There's, I'm not getting surgery. You're not touching me. You're not going to open me up. I'm not going to let anybody fuse me. And it was through asking, what are the risks? What are the success rates? Um, understanding, you know, when people have, have fusions, obviously there's a time and a place for it, but what is the quality of the life after the fusion? Are there actually other ways at healing this problem or is the fusion the only route? The fusion was obviously a highly recommended surgical route, but there was also this, this, it wasn't directly communicated. It was maybe you can restore this. Maybe you can rehab this, but at most you're going to need assisted walking devices. At most, you're probably going to need to be wheelchair bound. A fusion would help you get back on your feet. It's going to limit range of motion. It's going to limit rotation, but at least you can have some quality of life. Um, for some reason that just scared the heck out of me. And I don't know, you know, I look back and try to justify it, all I can say, it was, it was just a voice inside saying, that's not the route that you're going to go yet. And it was also this conversation of me being very realistic that, um, well, that surgery is not going anywhere. It's always there. The surgeons will always take my money and the insurance company will take care of it. Like that option's always on the table. I want to see if I can find other alternatives first other routes first. And, and that's really where I kind of divided myself from those recommendations and started looking towards the more traditional, uh, what is chiropractic, what's PT, what's massage, what's acupuncture, physio, all of those, those variables. I started to kind of put myself through the, the, the rigmarole of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I probably 
know just enough about fusion, spinal fusion stuff to be dangerous. So like, uh, <laughs> I, I, and I mean, this is 14 years ago too. So like, right. Is my, remember that right? 14 years ago is when it mm-hmm. happened. Okay. So yeah. it seems like, uh, the stuff I do know about spinal fusions is just some of the more like the progress of alternatives, maybe to having like discs fused and stuff like that. Is that something where 14 years ago, there was very little to know alternatives that were, were kind of floating around there versus today. Have we made a lot of progress in terms of like, if you went, if you had this, let's say, I guess the way to ask this question is probably if you had the exact same injury today and went in would the specialists have other options, maybe options similar to what you ended up going with uh, available versus 14 years ago. Yeah. I think that there's not only more options available, but there's more science. There's more literature. There's more understanding of how you rehabilitate injuries and how you manage that healing process. Um, there's more holistic avenues today than there was 14 years ago, and they're more mainstream and widespread. Um, I also think that nowadays surgery is becoming not the first go-to response because we're starting to understand as fusions have been around for decades and we're looking at what is happening over the short and long term are there more effective ways at treating breaks are there more effective ways at rehabbing the body and i think as the the literature progresses um, as we become with a little bit greater clarity it's just not the first default option anymore I know that that people come to me who are borderline, we're talking pretty, pretty significant form of scoliosis, some 50 to 60 degree curvature, well above the threshold of when surgeons start to recommend surgery. Even their surgeons are saying, you need to exhaust every option you can. This surgery will be here for you in the future. But I, let's see what can be done without having to go under the knife. So I think there's just more of the conscious effort on the medical experts and the surgeon side that there are options now out there for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds like there are some cool new stuff coming up, but let's rewind back to 14 years before some of those were maybe upfront (laughs) and available. Yeah. So let's hear about kind of your your process. You you get the, the note from the doctor essentially saying, you know, here's, uh, you know, here's the option that we can, we can do from an operating standpoint, you're a little unsettled by that. How did you kind of take that next step towards what you ended up doing? Yeah, the next step was asking for recommendations for physical therapy. So that was just my first natural entry point is go to the people who rehab injuries, um, ask for quite an extensive list of, of PTs in the area. And I started to go see them. And it was, um, felt really good at the start, but it ultimately fell short for what I was experiencing. And I had tried a couple of different PTs, tried a couple of their different approaches. Every time I went in, the main focus was the back, the site of the break, the force where the trauma was. And over time, the vertebrae healed over time, the herniations healed but I was still in a chronic state of disability. And this was probably some two years after being in the PT system and learning the exercises and going through the, the process of that. Um, the people I saw were great, were great. They were really competent, but I still wasn't able to stand. And the reality of, man, maybe I should have done that fusion really started to set in. And the closer I got to that idea, 
it just kind of made me a little bit more panicky. So then I started other approaches. Let's go a little bit more intense rolfing. Let's go into massage therapy. Let's go get poked and do acupuncture. Um, I really started to kind of expand in desperation, all of the different uh, more mainstream modalities. And there was, there was value and merit in each one of them. Each one, I kind of learned how it affects movement. How does it affect inflammation and damage and injury? But it just felt like it was missing something. And again, as time went on, as my resources started to dwindle, I couldn't really work. I was running out of money. I was affording therapy on credit cards. Um, I started to get a little bit more panicky. And then I started to look towards these gurus online, you know, where are the Instagram guys, where, where are the, the YouTube people who say that they know what they're doing and their methods the best. And man, I spent an exorbitant amount of money chasing down those avenues too. And, and every time I went down a road and every time I tried a new therapy, it was great, but I kept finding things that just weren't doing the job. And ultimately, I was kind of just floating in this vicious cycle of the original injury still causing pain. The way that I was moving to avoid pain was creating a whole host of other issues. And it was these two things simultaneously that weren't getting, that weren't getting the focus they needed. Either somebody was just chasing where it hurt or somebody was trying to deal with the soft tissue damage in the lower back, but wasn't addressing that for years. I had not really learned how to use my left leg since that accident. I could still hardly feel it. There were still dead spots with it. We weren't addressing the body as that total whole system. And this ultimately led me towards the work that I'm doing now, which is taking a really integrative approach to uh, understanding how somebody's entire body moves and what are the movement patterns that can really start to heal some old nagging injuries. Is that how pain Academy started then was kind of, was, was that like the inception, I guess? <laughs> yeah, that was the inception. So, um, years after being very frustrated with things, not changing much, um, I kind of took it upon myself to just educate educate myself. I went back to school. I got a certified personal training um, uh, certificate and I started to learn about the body. And my thought was if I could learn on the academic side of things, how things worked, then I would be able to kind of pull myself out of this because the, the relying on others to fix this, it just wasn't happening the way I needed it to. And as I was this personal trainer, I was passionate about helping people, but man, I was still the guy limping around. I couldn't re-rack the weights. It looked like a struggle, just me standing or demonstrating an exercise. I had to teach everything verbally because I physically couldn't actually show the exercises. Um, a member in the gym that I was a trainer at approached me and he handed me a business card and he said, Hey, I don't mean to make you feel bad about this, but I can see you're having a really hard time moving. I've got a guy that I want you to talk to. And mind you, this was years after seeing guys and talking to many guys. I was very burnt out from the experience. My walls were up. I didn't think anything was going to work. And I kept getting closer and closer to just succumbing to getting a fusion. And I took this guy's business card, put it in my car and just forgot about it for months. And a couple months went by, I'm in the grocery store and I'm trying to, to get this gallon of milk off the shelf, which was a struggle to do. It felt like too much weight. 
pain wincing, drop the gallon of milk, cause a little bit of a scene in the store. And the guy who approached me to ask for help, if I needed help, he was that same guy on that business card that the member handed to me. And he was very nice. He's like, I don't want to intrude, but I'd love to help you. Come see me. Can you, can you come see me in my office tomorrow? And I got defensive and I'm like, Hey man, no, I, I don't need help. You know, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, he's like, I'm not asking for money. I really want to help you with your left leg. I'm like leg. I broke my back. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Conversation went on a little bit further and finally decided to just, what, what do I have to lose? He doesn't want to charge me money. The guy just wants to help. Next day I show up in his office again, limping into the, the appointment and for an hour and a half without touching me, without doing any tissue manipulation, no adjustments, he's guiding me into these really specific positions and asking me to stay here and breathe. And every couple of minutes we change positions and the same thing, breathe, relax, very underwhelming, not a lot, right? I'm used to intensity, the massage therapist going hard. I have a really painful problem. So I think I need a very intense solution to solve this painful problem. An hour and a half goes by. I'm thinking, I'm really glad I didn't pay for this. What a waste of time, <laughs> right? Yeah. He asked me to stand up. I stood up and I started crying. It was the first time I could stand up without searing pain in my lower back. Man, it was so many emotions in that moment. Number one, my God, relief. Thank, like, thank you. This is the only time I felt relief in years at this like deep visceral level on a nervous system level relief. Not only did I find relief, but my mind was racing. He didn't touch me. He didn't adjust me. Like what did, what just happened by the time I got to this guy's appointment, I was already a corrective exercise specialist. I knew a lot of therapeutic protocols. I knew a lot of interventions and modalities. This was none of that. What the hell just happened? And I was mad. I was immediately what followed the relief and the enjoyment was how was this never recommended to me? How was moving and repositioning your structure never a part of the process in all of the therapeutic modalities that I, that I had subjected myself to? That day, Pain Academy was born because it was now my mission to make this information as accessible for as many people who are struggling in this infinite loop of the chronic injury cycle, how you can actually disrupt that cycle yourself at home in a couple very specific ways. That was the birth of what I now do. Interesting. Um, have you, uh, have you ever heard of Aaron Alexander and the line method by any chance? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought it just the, the, the way you're talking about this just reminds me of a lot of the stuff that he talks about. So I was just like thinking like you guys need to meet at some point. Uh, but yeah, Aaron, Aaron has been on the show a couple of times and he's here in Austin as well. And uh, just a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it non-typical, but it's just things like you wouldn't necessarily consider that more or less puts you in a position to avoid uh, maybe a little different than yours. I mean, you had a chronic, like acute 
an acute injury essentially. Whereas like, I think a lot of people are thankfully not finding themselves with, with broken backs, but they're finding themselves with years or decades of just improper posture or like poor mechanics that eventually lead to some sort of pain or discomfort that is making their, their life little look more difficult to, to move through. And, and his, some of his stuff is kind of just like, well, like create an environment where it's less conducive to do the things that would be negative. So he's like, get a nice soft carpet. So that gets, so you don't avoid sitting on the floor. Uh, you know, don't have like couches, chairs and every which corner. So you could be sitting in kind of like a non-traditional manner, like for long periods of time and just a, in a lot of the breathing stuff too. So it's like um, hearing you kind of talk about uh, what, what you learned sounds like a lot of little, some of some similarities with, but from a, from a philosophical level anyway. Yeah. And, and changing your environment, it's a part of why we feel the way we feel, whether we're running really long distances or sitting in a chair, our body is always in a state of adaptation. Now, obviously intensity is going to determine how quick or how much our body responds to that. But the way that your furniture is arranged, the way that your house is structured, your environment is laid out has a massive influence over the way that we're moving and navigating. It makes choices for us without us even realizing it all the time. So changing your environment can create enough of an adaptation or enough of a reason to give your body change. So I'm glad to hear Aaron's Aaron's on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's cool stuff. I think, uh, I mean, simple stuff too, as much as just like for, for people that I've implemented that don't, they sort of come second nature now is like, rather than uh like standing somewhere for a while or sitting in a chair i'll just like get down into like a into like a deep squatting sitting position especially if i've been like in a chair or something for a while and just sit in that position for a few minutes and incorporate sort of that sort of a that sort of stuff throughout the day where otherwise i would maybe not even think twice about doing it and you notice little things kind of like improve or range of motion improve and stuff like that just from kind of putting your like you said your body is going to adapt to the environment you put it in so if you're putting it in an environment which it's being asked to go through a full range of motion and use some of these these channels that are maybe previously closed due to inactivity you start to wake these things back up and it's not something where you do it a couple times and you're like okay now i feel great it is something like you said where it's it's months if not years of kind of consistent repetition before you kind of start having those those kind of physical grooves cut in a way where your body's used to it again. Yeah, there was a, a bit on what you're talking about. There was this uh, famous, pale, excuse me, famous paleoanthropologist who did this meta study that looked at a variety of cultures. So not just uh, contemporary Westerners, but we're talking a wide range of cultures across the globe. And his main job was to look at how does a chair change the way that we move. And I'm not talking about, you know, we sit on the hamstrings and it creates hamstring dysfunction or tight hips. He wanted to look at when a chair is not present in someone's environment, what, how many combinations of movement and sitting does a human being actually go through? And when you remove a chair from your environment, there's over a hundred different sitting positions that a human being will get into and shift around on a minute by minute basis to find what is that level of comfort. When we introduce a chair into our environment, there's really only a handful of, there's really only a few. So removing that chair from that environment 
opens up a massive level of variability to the different postures that you're going to assume to do the same thing that you're doing anyways. It's quite fascinating. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough Supplement and Inside Tracker's Blood Panel and Nutrition Coaching. Links can be found in the show notes or at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting way to look at it because like, you know, regardless of how many times I'm sitting in that kind of squatting position, I'm not sitting like that for two hours. So like, but I could easily sit in a chair <laughs> yeah. for two hours. And, and like you said, maybe like slightly shift a couple different ways, but generally I'm going to be in a pretty similar sit position for that. Whereas if I'm squatting on the ground and I don't have the chair, I'm going to probably move into a different position after a couple of minutes. And then from that one move again, and over the course of two hours, I might've found myself in a couple dozen different positions that are kind of keeping me a little more more balanced, I guess, uh, with like the way my body's able to hold itself up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what we're really talking about here, right. you don't have to break your back to have movement problems. So many of us are plagued with the inability to move well, or movement is just uncomfortable or there's significant imbalance. And when we break down movement as, as really the simplicity of just changing your shape. So right now you and I are sitting in a certain shape, our body adapts to that shape. If we can make many shapes throughout the day, we are going to have many different, uh, uh, different variety of ways to move. People who have movement issues, they only change a few shapes in a few ways throughout the day. And because their body isn't versatile at changing its shape, we run into a lot of things we can't do. When you start removing the chair or when you start looking at how many shapes can I start making on a daily basis? What are the positions and exercise that open up the body to its full range of motion and function again? When you start to introduce more shapes into your life, you're going to find that you can make more shapes. You can move easier and that becomes more well-rounded. And the majority of people that come to my program, there, is, there are a few common denominators, but one of the main ones is that they can no longer change shape. It's not that there's anything such as bad posture. Bad posture becomes when you can't get out of that shape anymore. When you sit in that fixed position and then you go to run and you're still bringing in that chair posture where the hip can't extend, the mid back is still pretty flexed and we're not rotating. When we can't get into that runner shape, that's what then creates some really specific running injury, so on and so forth. And so when we talk about restoring movement and correcting imbalances and, and helping people do more of what they love, it's really helping their body change shape again and teaching them the process of how to actually do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you just described was something that I kind of experienced firsthand. I, uh, I was, uh, one summer, I was doing a lot of two a day running. So I do most of my running in the morning and then like a shorter run in the afternoon evening. And between then I was pretty busy with a few different things that were like more like computer-based desk type stuff. So I wake up, you know, get about my day, go about doing that first workout, come back, clean up, sit in that chair for a few hours, then do the next workout. And, uh, I remember the first like mile or two of that second run, I have this like discomfort kind of all on around my knee where I was like, I wonder if I have like patellar tendonitis or something like that, but it would loosen up. It mm -hmm. was like, as soon as I kind of get one or two miles in, I wouldn't notice it anymore. So I didn't think too much of it, but I was uh, working with uh, a chiropractor for a bit. He said, 
you know, what's probably happening is your hip flexors are so tight from being in that chair. That's like the shape that you're sitting in between those running sessions. And those running sessions are trying to put you in such a different shape. You're sort of like asking a lot of your body to go from that shape to that shape. Uh, he's like, let's try to do some things. So you're not getting that hip flexor, like compression the way you are. And then we go for that second run, see if that clears up that knee, that knee issue. And then sure enough, after doing some of that stuff and getting out of that chair and not putting myself in that shape for long periods of time, I would go for that second run. And, you know, there'd still be some soreness sometimes if I had had like a, like a workout or something like that, but they weren't like pain to the joint type soreness. Like I was having uh, so it's like, that's, I made that connection then I was like, okay, so if you, if something's hurting here, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the spot you need to fix. or that's the thing you need to fix. And it sounds like if you holistically put this type of approach in place, you just find yourself like, if you're someone like myself who hasn't broke my back, you find yourself in a situation where you can avoid these things altogether by being preemptive about it and kind of having those situations kind of spelled out in your day-to-day -day life in a way where you're just not. Uh, putting yourself in a position to notice them in the first place. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the breeding ground for a lot of injuries that start to show up later is we start to do the activities that we love doing without, and, and we don't even need to become a biomechanical expert, but just without a simple understanding of what shape is this activity asking me to do Well, running one hip flexes, one hip extends. Can I actually make that shape? And can I do it the same on both sides? And when we can start to understand the shapes that we need to make to help us do the things that we love to do more long-term, we get to really start to understand and be able to catch injuries before they happen. Because when you're noticing you can no longer make that shape in a simple, calm environment like your home, well, you're not just going to radically change that doing a 20 mile run. You're bringing that body, that same body that can't make the running shape, you're bringing that into the running activity. And that's where we're going to run into a lot of injuries with that person and the same repetitive injuries. So the science obviously on warming up is great, you know, warm up the tissue, reduce injury, so on and so forth. But I also believe we need to warm up shape. If we can think about the activity we're going to do, what function does my body need to have not on a tissue temperature level, but can my body actually get into that shape and make it so I can then go do that activity as much and as long as I'd like. And that's a really important thing to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then when you decided like, all right, this is going to be my path forward, uh, after meeting with, uh, with the gentleman who kind of got you to essentially relieve some of that discomfort and pain in your leg was uh did you get maybe i should ask did you guys end up were you both pain academy did you guys decide to go and go into business together with that or was that something independent yeah actually uh that's a great question we did decide to go into business together um which i now understand why this information isn't really readily accessible to a lot of people um i think you can be br brilliant at working with the body but when it comes to business acumen can be quite challenging. And that's what we were really up against. And so the partnership didn't essentially work out the way he and I both hoped it to. Um, but it was after that first session, I gave him a proposal and, and I asked him to do this on a bigger scale because this information needs to be known. And we collaborated. He was my mentor for a few couple of years after that. 
Um, we did have a good run with business together, but I think we both just kind of had different interests and, and separated from there. And then I kind of took pain Academy on, on, on my own and, um, has just kind of been solo since. Awesome. So along the way with that, as you're kind of building up that side, the business side of it and, and understanding like how you're going to implement all that, was there some breakthrough? There must've been some breakthroughs there where you were starting to kind of make strides back to being able to be active like you were previously when you were a collegiate swimmer? Yeah. You know, um, there actually wasn't, so I had that first initial breakthrough in that first session and it was probably a few years after that first session until the actual real big transformative breakthroughs happened. I struggled a lot with the mental part, the mindset of navigating how not only how do you navigate being in a debilitating or chronic pain situation, but all of the false expectations that come with it, your own relationship to pain, how that can sometimes sabotage the process. I wasn't a great student. I was a great teacher. I wasn't a great student. And it took me a few years to actually put this together for it to start making sense to be applicable to my situation in my life. Um, and so once I kind of had some breakthroughs and uh, really fundamentally changed my relationship with pain and wasn't afraid of the signal, right? Here was this signal that kind of took me from elite status to living life on the ground, staring at my ceiling. I'd come to hate pain. And because I had such a poor relationship with it, I fought and I was afraid of it every single day through this recovery and rehabilitative process. And as you know, and I think you could speak to with, with incredible wisdom, your relationship to pain is going to send you in a certain direction. And if it's not a good relationship with pain, if you don't have that great inner self-talk, it can be a very uh, destructive destructive thing. And so I had the tools, I had the information, I had the science, I had the research, I had the literature. What I didn't have was my ability to actually negotiate sensation. And that's what took years to actually figure out. Mm -hmm. So along the way, what were some of the things that you implemented that started uh, getting you in a position where you are today, where you're even considering doing a 50 mile ultra marathon? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, not being afraid of intensity and not being afraid of rest, right? Movement and rest are, are opposite sides of the same coin. And from me going from never having been a runner, being chronically disabled for 10 years, and then deciding to go into uh, training, I wasn't even thinking of an ultra marathon. I just wanted to start running. Maybe a half marathon was on, on the horizon. Um, it was a constant daily management of how to take workout from the runs incredibly deconditioned. I think deconditioned is an understatement of what my body, the state of my body was two years ago. Going on a run would wind up so much tension and it would almost guaranteed put me into a flare up and then understanding how to kind of drop gears and bring your body back to a state of, of passive, almost kind of relaxation of being able to make shapes again and learning how to listen and use intensity along the way has been massively helpful. 
there's, there's routines that I have. And I kind of think of it like a race car driver. If you're going to be a successful race car driver, you got to know how to drop in and out of gears. Well, there are routines that help you drop out of neural drive. There's routines that really activate the parasympathetic nervous system and calm and shut down a lot of neuromuscular function. There are also routines that really ramp up your neural drive and really get you going. Almost like think about what it would take to get ready for sprint work. You're not casually walking and starting to sprint. You're ramping up your system. So having these varying degrees of intensity, I've been that race car driver dropping in and out of the gears that I needed to, to be able to listen and give my body what it needs to kind of get it ready to do something like this. Again, going from literally ground zero to now training the way I am. It's, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty intense turnaround. And I owe it all to being able to learn how to listen to what is that, that sweet spot of intensity that's going to help me with what I need to feel right now. Mm -hmm. And are these routines, are they kind of like a combination of like breath work and then the right, I guess, uh, mobility or active warm-up type maneuvers to both physically and kind of, uh, it physically and just energetically kind of gets you into the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to do something that's a little more intense versus just uh, a nice, easy job. Partially uh, the routines are obviously varying based on the intensity or the outcome that I want, but every routine has the same structure. Step one is reducing compensation. Regardless if I'm trying to relax, regardless if I'm trying to move or prep for a race or a training session, if I just get straight to work, I'm going to do whatever exercise is with that compensatory pattern because the body I'm doing it with is still the same. Mm -hmm. So the first thing every routine is designed to do is to change compensatory patterns. This is by uh, taking rotation out of the skeletal system, calming down the nervous system, trying to rebalance out the muscular system while you're very supported. You're on the ground, you're up against the wall. You're using these flat, even surfaces to try to retrain as close to possible what symmetry is. So when it becomes time to move, you're going to be able to a talk to both sides with as best of a chance as possible for working and when we move, we're going to have a higher chance of getting the movement in the right joints, which means the right muscles are going to start doing the right job. So what I learned a long time ago is you can have all the great, amazing corrective exercises in the world. Each one individually holds merit and value. But when you start to learn how to sequence a series of corrective exercises that calm down compensatory patterns, relax the nervous system, re-stimulate symmetrical movement, and then get the right joints to start moving in optimal ways. When you can structure a routine like that and then finish off with dynamic movement, what we're doing is we're reintegrating proper movement patterns in a sustainable way. And the nervous system isn't going to change if it doesn't feel safe. If I go show you a brand new way to move and like, for example, for you, you're a runner, you've got a very specific running form. If I just go change your running form like that, probably not going to like it. It's too, it's too radical and too gnarly of a change too fast. It's going to feel unsafe and uncomfortable, and you're going to default back to your old way. What we have to do is systemically slowly carve out new neural pathways of movement. So they feel safe and they feel available 
and those actually feel better. So you can adopt those patterns into any of the activities that you're doing. And that's what I've spent a considerable amount of time and research doing is understanding how do you actually sequence corrective exercises to achieve the holistic change we're looking for, not just treat the spot or the area or the muscle group, but have that dynamic systemic full body change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I think like when I'm, we're, I'll, I'll teach like this running clinic, it's, it's nothing spectacular, but it's like a four point, let's just like, let's try to get our bodies into the right position and understand what we're doing when we're out there running. Cause I find runners oftentimes they don't get the same kind of like pre-sport skill set development like you might see in some of the more like highly contact sports where it's like it's intuitive like we know if you're going to play like tackle football there's some drills you should probably master before you're out there in the field <laughs> running into each other probably right <laughs> it's like yeah. it just makes sense but running we always just think of, oh that's just natural but you know it's just those tiny impacts that build up over time and like you said when you have those compensatory patterns uh that's when you end up driving impact forces into the areas that our bodies are intended to be passive. And I think the knee is the great story of that. Like, you know, you have like these really great designs in like our feet and ankles and then our hips and things like that, that are more or less meant to like keep our knees passive in the running motion, even though we think of like quadriceps as like these powerful muscles and stuff like that. But, um, you don't really notice it until it becomes a problem because they're always overused, small impact stuff. And uh, even when I'm teaching that clinic though, like we'll get to one of the points which is cadence. And it's like this, you know, a proper cadence and there's going to be a range based on your intensity of, of pacing. So everyone's going to have like a low and a high range. Uh, but if you get really low on your cadence, it's a good indication you're probably overstriding. And if you're overstriding, you're likely reaching your leg out further and placing your foot down in a position where it's out in front of your knee, which is going to just drive those impact forces in the wrong spot. So if I'm working with someone who's been doing that for like a year or however long, for me to say like, okay, let's take your cadence of 155 steps per minute all the way up to 180. Yeah, you know, they they're they're gonna probably either, like you said, feel super awkward and gravitate back and maybe give up or they're going to be really really like driven to get that 180 and hurt themselves because now they're putting their body through such a different like mechanical range than they were before they're not ready for it so like those taking those steps where you're both like you know changing things at a gradual enough rate where your body's able to kind of adjust and get used to it and then take another step forward so like cadence it's like setting up from 155 up to 180 maybe we just get comfortable at 165 for a little while. And once that becomes intuitive, we'll move it up to 175 and just, you know, find that spot a little more gradually, a little more naturally and let everything kind of catch up. So we don't hurt something else in the process of trying to fix something else. You touch on a really important concept that I don't think is ta talked about and explored enough. And it's, it's in the world of form and correction, it's very unpopular opinion because I think we all like to think that we can go correct someone's form. If we really take a step back and understand what form is, form is the series of our function. It is the individual addition of how all of our joints and muscles work together. Someone's natural form or natural cadence is the sum of how their body functions. Where... And, and, I, and I fell into this trap really early on in my corrective exercise field, seeing somebody squat, seeing a bad squat, 
and trying to correct their form to make a good squat. And these people would hurt and they'd run into injuries and all of these things happen. And in my mind, it's, it was confusing because here are these people squatting to form as what biomechanical textbooks would say is ideal, but they're hurting, they're moving actually worse. And it took some time to really take a step back and understand that I, I don't think we can consciously correct form. I think we can for a very little amount of time. Like if you're slouch, you can sit upright. I think we have some manual control over force correcting form, but if our body could sit upright, it would, if it's not, and we now do a conscious cue over that, the question now becomes how, what did that person have to override to make that form happen? For somebody to consciously override going from a 150 to a 180 cadence, if their body had that natural flexion, extension, and rotation, 180 would be very accessible. It'd feel comfortable. It's probably uncomfortable because they're having to rotate their pelvis and their hips significantly more than their body's actually ever done so. And so even though we might like hit a great metric of, of, of uh, cadence or form, the question is always, how did this person get to that answer? And what happens when that person stops really acutely and intensely thinking about that F notions of form and correction go out the window. And over the past probably half decade, what I've spent considerable time and energy moving towards is this idea that we, if, if we want to change form, we have to change function outside of that form. So if we want a runner to run with straight feet, or if we want a runner to do something with their arms, where we correct that is outside of the run. Let's find that shape and that function. So when that runner now goes and runs, it's more of a naturally accessible thing where they're not having to consciously force correct and override that. If someone's got that natural foot aversion, but then learns biomechanically that foot and arch function might work more optimally and more energetically efficient when the foot's straight. Well, if they've got that tibial torsion creating that aversion and now they're overriding it because that's ideal form. Did they just do that through internally rotating the hip, tipping the pelvis forward and arching the back? And that now, you know, we can say it's better foot mechanics, but what happens in another 500 miles with this runner? What happens in 2000 miles? And so I'm, I'm ultimately being brought back to this place of, of maybe the best way to change form is outside of the actual activity. Let's change function and watch how form becomes significantly more available. And what I like about what you just said is not thrusting somebody into 180, but let's just see if we can improve that just a little bit just enough to make it comfortable so they don't get injured. That's incredibly important. And, and I think form correction goes zero to 62 fist too fast. If you're out here, force yourself here. No, let's make you 1% better here and more comfortable and safe. And let's build into that over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's also in terms of just like the muscle memory side of things, there's also just like the actual strength of the muscles, tendons, and ligaments in that different position where, you know, like if, if we decided to go to the weight room and you had like this goal of lifting a certain amount of weight, it doesn't really matter if that's your goal, you can't do it yet. So if we put, it's a little more like obvious in a weight room because you just physically can't, 
with running, you, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. force yourself, but like you have this weakness that's likely putting you in the improper position to begin with. That weakness is partially probably there due to um, not having the strength in those areas or the range of motion in those areas. And that is going to take corrective work outside of the activity itself a lot of times. So that like now not only are you able to kind of just gravitate to it intuitively, you actually have the, the hardware, I guess, so to speak, to be able to tolerate that position for the duration of time you were looking to do what you were with your previous form. And that's just, like you said, going to take some work and some time outside of the running itself and then some time with the running itself too. And that's where, that's where you got to be patient, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Pa- patience seems to be the answer for a lot of these, uh, these questions people ask. Mm-hmm. which is, which is not what people want to hear. No, at all. not always. No, no. <laughs> they want the one thing that's going to change it immediately right now. And it will magically solve, solve all the problems. And, and that was my struggle too. I wanted, uh, you know, when I had such a debilitating injury, um, I, I was seduced by this idea of something just like someone popping me or snapping me back in place. And it just mm-hmm. being this spontaneous big bang moment of healing. And it wasn't until I really understood it was actually reading a book about Buddhism that some people believe there is this spiritual enlightenment that happens in a radical second, but let's not rely on that. Let's look at the gradual path of enlightenment to then get to the place that we want to get to. And it wasn't really about hearing about the polarizing. There's the big bang people. And then there's the gradual path. I was that big bang guy, always searching for the one thing to just be a game changer. And I never actually devoted myself to a gradual process of change and, and nothing really changed until I put myself on the gradual path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it makes sense that that was what eventually got you to where you are was kind of reverting to the patient side of things. And um, one thing I'm always interested in with, with individuals like yourself, where you were highly successful at physical activity with swimming and you create this sort of level of like mental expectation or uh, confidence to some degree of what you're capable of doing. And then, you know, for me in the past, it's been like, you know, I get injured or something like that. And then I have to take enough time off where when I return to running, I'm like, Oh, I'm much slower at the same intensity than I was before. And you have to check yourself at those points because it's like, I know what I can do when I'm fit, but I'm not there right now. So I need to like, make sure I'm, you know, working within the system to get back to that versus trying to like be too, too, uh, mentally, like mentally driven to like get back to where I was quicker than my body's ready for. So you have this like disconnect between the physical and the mental. So for like that, when you started running, how hard was that to maybe accept how limited you were at the beginning versus where you maybe wanted to be, or was having that 10 years between the injury and deciding to run, was that enough time to maybe, maybe humble that mental side of things of what you were capable of doing when you were earlier or younger, I should say. I love what you just asked. And no, breaking my back was not humbling enough for me to come back to running and not expect I was going to be an elite pro runner within a few months. You know, it was just irrational. It was, mm-hmm. ira- it was, it was just the ego of, of being able to dominate most athletics, sorry, swimming, not any other athletic, sure. uh, being able to dominate that. And that, that kind of that warrior, that champion, that competitive mindset, 
it was there on that first run, despite me not having ran in 12 years since I broke my back, I was expecting a freak performance day one. It has been the hardest point of running is the mental side. There, there of course, have been the physical challenges and, and the things that have shown up from having such a deconditioned state and then starting an aggressive activity like running was at the time. Um, comparison, checking your, your mileage splits. I'm not training for the Olympics, but I'm training myself to pace in the first month. That made no sense. It was all of these like inner, inner, uh, insecurities of competition that showed up. And I didn't realize how much I was actually struggling with that until I went for a run without my watch. My watch died. So I had no smartwatch, no heart rate monitor. I had, I knew that there was a lap around the lake I live on. It was five miles up until that run without a watch on the furthest I had ever ran was about two miles and it was stop and walk many times. All of a sudden I'm out there. I don't have a watch on. I don't have my phone, no music. I'm just outside and enjoying it and breathing and not worrying about pace and heart rate and targeted zones or anything. And some 20, 30 minutes go by and I realize I'm beyond what I've actually, the furthest distance I've ever ran before in my life. I've must've surpassed the two mile mark by now. And I just wanted to see if I could keep going. And I think it was around three miles and four miles. And all of a sudden I see my house in the distance and it's like, holy heck, did I just run five miles? What just happened? Days ago, I could barely even struggle to get through two. And it was the mindset. It was the performance mindset was gone. I, there was no comparison of what I should be, what I was doing. I wasn't looking at my watch, holding myself to even the limited past performance I had or pace or heart rate zone. It was just, let's go move and let's enjoy it. And that was the breakthrough run that I had that showed me how significant mindset has to do with your experience while running. And from that moment, I've done a lot of work to ditch this competitive mindset and get back into why am I even doing this in the first place? It's because I couldn't do it years ago. It's because I spent so many days watching other people walk and run while I'm sitting down miserable. That's why I'm doing this. And, and I think getting very clear on my why dropped a lot of the performance anxiety I had and the pressure and the expectation that I was putting on myself. But I say this with a, but there is still that mentality of, well, surely I can do this. Cause I was that pro athlete back in the day. Hell I signed up for a 50 mile race and I've mm -hmm. ran one marathon before. Like that's it. So of course that is still deeply embedded in my psychology that, uh, uh, how could I not, you know, how could I fail doing this? But I, I also think that that served me very well in life. And I'm going to, like I said, before we, we started recording, I'm going to run into some, some, uh, lessons along that 50 mile trail run, which I'm excited to, to run into because of that. Mm -hmm. I think I should have probably prepared significantly more and have gradually incrementally worked my way into it but I think I still got that chip on my shoulder that I'm still that, that young elite, elite athlete. Maybe I always will be in my mind. Yeah. Well, I do think with ultra marathon, there is like a, a unique, like ignorance is bliss <laughs> phenomenon going on too, where like 
Yeah. You don't necessarily want to know what you're going to have to go through. And if you're like strong willed enough and, you know, physically prepared enough, you'll find a way through it. So sometimes like not knowing all the hurdles you're going to go over beforehand is a bit of an escape because you just take them as they come then. And that's essentially where, where I see people making a bit of a shift in their ultra marathon running is when they've done kind of a handful of the different distances, they sort of know what they're getting into when they're doing any of these things. And they're able to say like, okay, I know how bad it can get and where my mind can go. And then they start ordering these things in a way where they can kind of have a little more control over them, or they, they have a little bit more of a uh, kind of response to them that is correct because now they know they're there and they know how to behave around them versus kind of troubleshooting one at a time. But there's like this gray area in between like that ignorance is bliss. And like, now I have all the answers where you're sort of like, you're fearful of what you know, but you don't have all the answers yet. And I think that's where a lot of people hit sticking points in their alternate career uh, and find themselves like, you know, taking a step back and maybe even quitting altogether. And they don't end up getting to that problems are solved to a degree where I can trust the plan and get that same level of confidence and determination that you had early on before you knew what you were getting into uh, through a more educated side of things. So it's like a really interesting transition, but I think like you'll, you'll, you'll begin that path shortly, I suppose. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I'm excited to uh, hopefully be one of those vets in the ultra community that gets to look back on the guy who like myself is ambitiously and eagerly taking on a really big challenge. It'll be nice to know what I know then and, and hopefully share some of that wisdom uh, to the younger guys just getting into it. But uh, to your point, yeah, there's uh, ignorance is bliss right now. I have an idea of what it's going to be like, but I don't think I have an idea of what it's actually going to be like at mile 30 and 40 and the kind of conversations uh, you're going to need to have with yourself to get you through it. Do you still run into those really dark spots or those, those areas where, man, I haven't been here before. What is it going to take to get me through that? Or is this very well traveled terrain for you? Yeah. I mean, you, you still hit like those same kind of mental blocks and things like that. I think where, where I've grown the most the last few years is just kind of rehearsing those in training. Cause a lot of those things show up in training. They just aren't recognized in the same way. Cause they're not like you know, 40 miles into a race or something like that. It might be more like, you know, two thirds of the way through like a short interval session or something like that. You have these same like kind of negative self-talk creep in. And I think if you, if you look at your training through both a physical and mental lens, that's where you put yourself in a position to be able to kind of get past those things and racing a little bit better. Because now like I go and do a workout, I'm not there just to get the physical adaptation. I'm also there for that point where I feel like all right, I'm not sure that I'm going to hit this the way I want to. And then try to like talk my way through that in a quick enough manner where I'm not burning a ton of mental energy, like overthinking things, overcorrecting or putting self-imposed limitations on myself that aren't really there. And those are the things that I think ultimately usually cost people time or finishing these ultra races. And they hit this like dark patch and you get into this mindset where like this discomfort and this mental anguish and this boredom and everything that's kind of plaguing you all at the same time 
feels linear. And if it's this bad now, it can only get worse. And in your head, that makes sense because it's like, how could continuing the activity that got me in the first place make me feel better at any point? But that's what makes ultra marathon unique is you have those ebbs and flows where you might feel miserable at 35. Like you could, you couldn't possibly take on any more discomfort. Uh, and if you just like minimize your goal and just say, okay, I've just got to kind of get through this. I got to get through this. I got to get through this. Eventually you get through that. And then you hit a point where you might feel better than you have all day. I say mile 42, which is just a total mind trip because you're thinking to yourself, well, seven miles ago, I felt worse than I had ever. And now seven miles later, continuing what I was doing to get there has me feeling better than I have all day. And you just sort of need to experience that, I think, a few times to really realize where your limitations are or are not is maybe the better way to say it. Because I know for me, one of the hardest things to kind of like wrap my head around sometimes is you'll have a race where you really nail it. You're just like you're you're pushing through all that. You're like you're hitting these roadblocks that in the past would have caused you to slow down, stop, drop out, waste time, whatever it happens to be. Um and you get through it and you start asking yourself, well, I wonder if I was really in that bad of a spot like last year mm-hmm. when I was when I when I gave up here. So there's the kind of that dual like reflection period too after when you've done enough of them where you're kind of trying to you 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 start kind of running through the 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 play-by-play of previous races and trying to determine whether you were mentally weak there or if there was really something going on that was was not happening that day or you know did you not do the right put yourself in the right mental framework to have that like knock it out of the park type of performance and um it gets a little more interesting i just think when it's like anything you keep doing like if it's it's like if you think like chess or something like that like if you're just playing like at a basic level, you don't know what you don't know. So you're just kind of having fun. And then all of a sudden you've played it for 10 years. And now there's just like almost this endless number of like data points and moves and things you could try to like implement and learn and, and try to strategize around. It sort of kind of plays out the same way. I think to probably a little bit less of an intellectual degree, but uh, it could feel like that sometimes. Yeah. I, uh, how, how do you know if it's real, if that, self-talk if it's saying you need to stop because yeah, you've had those experiences question. where it's like all of a sudden wait a sec that that wasn't real how do you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean you don't know for certain and that's probably what makes it so exciting is there's like there's just enough there for you to think like well you know maybe i could have done better there or maybe not i mean there's also like a whole i mean there's also things like hydration, fueling, proper training and pacing and things like that, that are going to impact. So like, there are some that are clearer than others. Like I'll have races where I struggle at the end. And then I look back at it. It's like, yeah, no mental fortitude would have got me through that because I was running 20 seconds per mile too fast for the first 70 miles or something like that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. That's just like, you know, you can put limitations on yourself physically too, that are kind of like the, the mistake made there was not that I wasn't mentally strong. It was that I was, I was probably mentally like too confident in what I was capable of that day. And then over the course of, you know, two thirds of that race, it started to catch up to me. So there's that side of it. Then there's ones where it's like, you know, you, you look at the training block, you look at how that played out on race day or what that produced on race day. And if that matches the next one similar enough where now it's like, I had a massive improvement that I think you start having to look a little bit more like, well, what was I doing differently 
mentally on this in the second one that was that put me in a position to be able to kind of clear those hurdles a little more clean or or at all in some cases uh so i mean i i you you never know 100% for sure uh some are a little clearer than others but uh i i definitely think that there's a lot more mental limitation that people put on themselves at cost mm-hmm. of time than there are physical limitations so uh that I think maybe is just part of like the ultra marathon running culture a little bit where it's like, there's a, there's at least some of this like attitude of like, I don't necessarily want to accept that I wasn't able to like mentally battle through something. So it's easier to say like, Oh, well, like, you know, my quads blew up or Mm. uh, this happened or that happened. And sometimes that is the case, but like, I think ultra runners myself included at times are like a little more resistant to want to like admit to like a mental lapse (laughs) for whatever reason. But in reality, that's such a big part of the sport. How could it not, you know, you're not, you're not always going to be as sharp. And I think that that's like, that's like with anything that you're trying to do at a high level or trying to do to your maximum capability, there's going to be days where you're just firing on all cylinders mentally. And there's going to be days that you're not, and you, you kind of have to put yourself in the best position to try to be, able to do that on race day but inevitably it won't be a perfect uh every race goes exactly the way i wanted to which i mean technically that's probably why we keep doing it if it went that well then we would just do a few of them and stop and move on to something else right right uh why do you think the mindset is not so talked about up front when they hit that wall and tap out why do you think it's more shifted towards ah, i was the leg it was a hip um, I mean, I think it's talked about. I just think it's less admitted is maybe the way to say it. I think it's yeah. like, it, uh, and, and I mean, I'm not trying to like to say like, oh, everyone out there who uh, like DNS or has a bad race is had a mental lapse because there certainly are things. Like I said before, like, I mean, pacing is another thing where I think like ultra running as a sport uh, as a whole does a relatively, it does, does a, like, a little worse job of pacing than what you'd maybe see at like more Olympic distances. And some of that is just the nature of the sport. It's like, if you're running a hundred mile race, like how far are you going to run in a training session to really know what your actual goal pace is? So some of it's just like lack of invitation or a lack of information because we're extrapolating so far forward versus right. say someone, someone running a half marathon, they, they they very well may have ran past that distance in training. So they kind of know a little bit more, directly what is an appropriate pace so like there is definitely scenarios where you know someone gets out way too fast and then there's just they're, they're going to pay for that and it's going to be physically challenging uh but i think there's also like you know, you know dropping out and like you know starting to walk and things like that you know there's always this little bit of just like concession made i think when all of a sudden like your your top goals are off the table and then like, you know, you, maybe you keep finishing on as a goal and in reality, could you probably go a little bit faster than finishing and have kind of like a new goal that's between your primary goals and just walking it in and that sort of thing. Or, so you do have that, but I think it's, I think really what it is a lot of times is like, it's, it, it tends to be like a sense of pride with an ultra runner. Maybe is that like, I'm mentally strong enough to go out, take on this big challenge and put myself through this discomfort for you know, sometimes days on end and there's going to be mental weaknesses in that, even with a well-executed race. So like, 
when with that being kind of maybe a little bit more of a defining aspect of what an ultra runner considers themselves, it's a little harder to kind of at first glance admit that that was the area of weakness that needs to be improved upon is my best guess. Yeah. You know, when I was going through the trenches of, of resolving my back issue, um, and I, I think I can point to why this was, you know, I remember the doctor slapping the x-ray up on the, the light board and me seeing that physical break. So me thinking this was a physical problem that needed to be resolved. Mm -hmm. And I never thought mindset had to do with it. Again, it was very physical. It felt physical. I never for probably the first five-ish years of trying to rehab did I ever once spend an ounce of energy into developing mindset or looking at how that is actually enabling this problem uh, from getting worse or how it's preventing me from actually changing it. And, you know, for me, I think it's, it's uh, probably just the way I was raised. You know, we don't talk about emotions, uh, be strong, you know, that kind of stuff. Don't cry, things like that. Uh, it was, it was really destructive in my process of, of healing because it didn't allow me to connect with uh, myself again. And, to be able to get therapy, to get help, to be able to understand that this problem is half physical. You've got some, some physical structures that need to be resolved and how you show up mentally every day is so critically important. And the conversations that you have, again, how you change your relationship to pain. If, if you would have told me after breaking my back, the reason why I'm still in pain is because of my relationship to pain. I would have laughed and walked away. But now understanding what I know, it that that mindset has so much to do with if we're going to get to where we want to be or not. And so I, I hope one thing with my program is people see the importance of that at the start. Yeah, no, it sounds like you have certainly found a solution for what would otherwise have been, well, certainly was, but could have been a even more life altering experience. And it's always cool when people take those prove everyone wrong essentially, but then also offer like, here's the path forward. If you find yourself in a situation that is either similar or in the same kind of a realm as, as, as you were. Um, and you know, pain is one of those things that everyone is probably going to have some sort of relationship mm -hmm. with over time. If they're putting themselves through any sort of you know physical endeavor or sport or activity and, and, uh, yeah, having, having kind of like some, some good blueprints as to how to navigate that, I think is always going to be on, uh, on the interest list of those individuals. So it's, it's cool to see what you've got going on there and how you've kind of used your life experience as a way to, a way to kind of uh, put a spotlight on this stuff. Yeah. I think the missing framework, you know, the, these, these lessons of mindset and how to change relationship to pain and how you understand that just because something hurts, that doesn't mean there's a problem there. It means you got to pay attention. There's something happening within your body and learning how to, change your response from pain and becoming alarmed and panicked to really pain is just a greater calling to something that, that you're missing right now. Um, these were just not the conversations gone over in, in any of the therapeutic modalities within the first couple of years. It was just physical exercise. And, and when things would hurt, there was none of that education on how do you manage that as a human being, forget, forget athlete or anything. How do you manage progress or a lack of progress as a human being? And how does that change your mind? How does that 
either sabotage you or help you actually get through what you're going through. These were just the, the framework was missing for, for such a long time, um, which is why I'm a big proponent of that now. Mm-hmm. Awesome, Vinny. This has been a fun chat. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing how things go for you with your running endeavors <laughs> and certainly your, your 50 miler coming up here. Uh, it'll be a life-changing experience, no doubt. And I think you'll probably enter that slippery slope of ultra marathon where you start asking yourself what's next. But before then <laughs> you'll find yourself yeah. somewhere on that course swearing you'll never do another one. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, when, when I finish, I'm going to come back on here. We'll yeah. review some of the things I was saying and see how true that was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll find out how accurately we predicted this and like, I'll either look really dumb or really wise. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a feeling I know which one it's going to be. <laughs> awesome. Well, Vinny, before I let you go, uh, where can people find you? Uh, social media websites and that sort of stuff? Yeah, social media is at Pain Academy. Uh, that's on, on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And then website is painacademy.net. Awesome. Vinny, thanks a bunch for coming on and taking the time to tell your story. I'm looking forward to getting this one out to the listeners. Thanks for having me. And take care. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a Strength Athletes Guide to Endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.